you know, I do know this from talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, which is that if they go out and they make their brand entirely about data-driven ad spend, then, you know, you're, you're generally in a trap of having to continue data-driven ad spend. People are finding you and you're gaining customers and you're also reminding them that you exist entirely through that ad spend. And if they're, you know, it's, it's there in front of people or it's not, it's not a relationship. The thing about media, the thing about doing it right is that it's it's a really, really slow build and it can be really frustrating, but what you're building is a relationship and that is so much stickier. That's the kind of thing that ultimately you don't have to like keep paying for. Welcome to our weekly show, Brands at Podcasts, where we focus on one thing only, showing you behind the scenes of how some of the best brands in the world are using podcasting to grow. All right, Jason, welcome. Thank you for being here. I think maybe a good place to start could be if you could just give a quick overview of your role at Entrepreneur Magazine, and you also run a couple podcasts. One of them is for Entrepreneur Magazine. The other one, I believe, is your own personal podcast. Those are Problem Solvers and Pessimist Archives. And yeah, maybe if you could just give us a a little rundown of, of all of those. Sure. So thanks for having me. There's also a third podcast, by the way, which is called Hush Money. So I'll, I'll go through them all so you understand what on earth is happening. At Entrepreneur, I'm the editor-in-chief, which means that I oversee all editorial. I am, to be honest, more day-to-day involved in the production of the magazine than I am on digital because of our very robust contributor network. So we have a a team of editors who works with our contributor network, and that fills out uh, a large portion of what we publish online. So I'm working with them, but then I'm also very involved in the day-to-day editing of the magazine. And then making sure that any other editorial component of the brand is on brand. And I'm constantly in meetings and sharing ideas and trying to shape how we serve our audience. And that includes that I host one of our podcasts, as you say, it's called Problem Solvers. It's a weekly show in which uh, every week is about a entrepreneur solving an unexpected problem in their business. Then I have Pessimists Archive, which is a show about why the pessimists of the past were wrong and how to be optimistic about the future. A real show about understanding the nature of change. And then Hush Money is done with iHeartMedia, and that is a show about money and how it makes life awkward. And all of these shows are produced shows. So they're not shows in which, like this one, where it's just kind of start-stop where I'm interviewing somebody. They're highly produced. Uh, in the case of Pessimist Archive, it's like a 45-minute audio documentary where I'm interviewing tons of people, writing a six to 8,000-word script and you know performing a fairly complex thing. I think it's safe to say, based on all of that, is that you are quite prolific with this. It's incredibly impressive to be running three shows in parallel with also your day-to-day responsibility at Entrepreneur. So kudos to you on that. I know... I know from firsthand experience how difficult that is, especially at the high degree of quality that you're putting out on all of those. And I actually need to go check out Hush Money a little bit more. I appreciate you giving me the heads up on that. I I wasn't able to find that one before. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, that one's in, just for whatever it's worth, that one's, uh, we're we're between seasons right now. And I am, (laughs) to to the point about time management, I am too buried right now to get season three. So we're, (laughs) we can be putting it (laughs) on. (laughs) Understandable. Understandable. Cool. Well, you know what? I would love to really dive into, you know, from the standpoint of 
Entrepreneur Magazine first. Maybe we start there. Like, obviously, being a content first business, what was the impetus for going down the podcasting route? Like, what what were the goals of problem solvers that you thought could help achieve or raise awareness for or drive ROI for for the brand? And like, how did that really kick off? What was the impetus for that? Yeah, you know, so it's really funny. Traditional media companies, and I, you know, I have friends who work at a ton of them, and I, I think of anything as traditional media as something that was born before digital publishing as we know it. And entrepreneurs have been around for 40 years, so certainly counts in there. Friends of mine, and myself included, who are in traditional media and have gotten into podcasting through that traditional media, have all experienced something of the same thing, which is that, you know, it, it, it's hard to make the case it's hard to make the business case that podcasting is going to be a core part of the business. The New York Times has done it very well. I mean, the daily drives a ton of revenue. But for most others, it becomes a kind of secondary part of the business because you know these things are very hard to scale and they're hard to monetize at first. And so when Entrepreneur got into it, the business side really saw it as an additional offering, right? The, the, the sponsors that we work with are interested in podcasting. It's not their core interest, obviously, because they're they're coming to us for partnerships in all sorts of other ways, be it print or digital. But, you know, they're interested in podcasting and we're aware that our audience, our podcast listeners, and we felt like that's a space that we should play in and we should see how it evolves. And so when, you know, when it started, it wasn't really thought of as let's get into podcasting and in the next year this is going to become one third of our business right we knew that wasn't going to be the case but we felt like it was important to be there it's important to engage with audiences wherever they are we have to go to our audience instead of expecting them to come to us and that if we get into podcasting one it it creates additional means of engagement it creates new opportunities to speak to people, develop content. I found a lot of synergies in the way in which, for example, we all report something out for the podcast first, and then I'll say, hey, you know what? Actually, this makes for a pretty good magazine story or something like that, and then it'll move over. And so I'm able to get more mileage out of that individual work. And we have been, you know, we have sold into it. It does drive revenue, which is great. And so, you know, we're, we're happy to see that continue to grow. That's awesome. And how did you go about it when you were first getting started with it? Like, did you put a team together dedicated just for the podcast? Did you work with an external provider? You know, how did you really execute on that vision? Well, we we did it all in-house. And, you know, to, to understand the context here, Entrepreneur has a large footprint, but it is actually a pretty small company. We're very, very scrappy. We're very entrepreneurial, true to the name. And so we don't have, you know, we don't have big investors. It's a family-owned company. So we, we don't generally have the kind of free-flowing cash that a New York Times or somebody might have to say, you know what, let's, we're going to go into this. We're going to throw a bunch of money and build a team. And we're going to see how it goes. Like, it's just not how we operate. So how do we operate? Well, I had an idea for the, I, we were talking about podcasting. I was already familiar with how to make a show because Pessimist's Archive already existed. So I knew what I was doing. And so I said, why don't I start? Why don't I sit down, just figure it out, come up with a show, let's see if we like it. And everyone said, great. 
So the very first thing I did was I, I thought, well, who can be a good test subject for me? And a guy I grew up with has a really interesting company and I had happened to just recently have lunch with him and heard about this new stuff that's going on. And I, so I called him up and I said, Jaron, can I just like interview you for this like test that I'm doing for making a podcast? And he said, sure. So we got on the phone for 30 minutes and then I sat there and tried to figure out how to make the show. Uh, what, what, what would be the structure? What is a format that's, that's quality, but also easily repeatable so that I can get it down to, a, to, to you know, only taking a few hours a week to make this thing. And then we brought on an outside producer who helped build it out, think about the, the logo design, the marketing, the kind of organizational structure of it. And we ultimately eventually moved off of that producer and took some of those features in-house and then just worked with a third party to assemble, like do audio assembling. But that's, you know, that's how we did it. Really, really lean, made sure that it was something that we liked, and then really just scaled it as it scaled itself. We still do the majority of the actual creation of our shows in-house using staff that's doing lots of other things as well. We don't have a dedicated audio team, but it's, you know, it's working for us. Amazing. I love it. I love the scrappiness and the consistency, which is hard to pull off the scrappiness plus consistency. I know how challenging that is. So, well, you know, that, that producer who we brought on in the very beginning, the greatest thing that he did, I mean, you know, he got us going and that was great, but the greatest thing that he did was that he told me have three months worth of material <laughs> before you launch the show. Yes, like and uh, and that was that was brilliant. And I, I will I will admit that as my life has gotten busier, I have whittled away at that to the point where I don't have that kind of runway at all anymore. But for for at least the first year or so of problem solvers, I, I generally was working three months out in advance. It, it is such a good buffer to have, especially when you're when it's not your core day to day. It's just working on the podcast. It's like that's one piece of it. That's one piece of the week for you. Yeah, exactly. And you got to know where that. So now I don't. Now I'm 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 on the treadmill a lot more than I was before. But I plan out. So even if I haven't produced the episodes three months in advance, I I have about three months worth of planning. I know what they're going to be, so I'm not scrambling every week to make it. Amazing. So what, what have you seen then from, you know, as you mentioned, like, you know, scaling up the process a little bit as the show scaled up, anything you can point to or share with us in terms of like what, and you mentioned a little bit earlier, but in terms of like how you think about ROI of this, which it doesn't have to be super quantitative, like bottom line analysis. It sounds like maybe there's some of that, but not like in its entirety, the value of the podcast is determined by just pure revenue, pure profit, things like that. But like, what have you seen from the show, whether like size of the the audience that you've been able to grow the show to, or like anecdotal feedback you hear from entrepreneur readers and audience members and listeners, like how, how do you kind of articulate some of the, the return you've seen on going down this podcast path? It's interesting. I think of the ROI for each of my three shows as completely different. And so I'll, t I'll take you through them really fast. I mean, uh, Problem Solvers obviously has the most kind of institutional connection. And so it has to play a role in a larger ecosystem. And so there, I mean, 
the the first ROI is it really is revenue. I mean, this is a it's a media company, and if it, if if you're doing something and it's not making money, then it's a drain of resources. So it does make money, and that's important. And we want to make sure that it continues to grow and continues to make money. But I see it. Outside of that, and you know, it's funny. I mean, I don't, I don't get any of that money. <laughs> that's, that's money. That's money that goes into the company, right? In the same way that I don't get, I don't get money. I don't get a, a piece of every ad that gets run in the magazine. So I'm happy that it's making money because, to me, that validates our audio experiments and, and enables us to go deeper into them. That's good for me. But then my perspective on on editorial is that I see it as a great opportunity to to get more stories. You know, I, I, I don't have time because of how busy I am and the role that I have. I don't have time to just like hop on the phone and chit chat with people like I used to. You know, people people will email me and say, hey, can I get 15 minutes of your time? No, the answer is no, you can't get 15 <laughs> minutes of my time. I just don't have it. Like I just don't have that time to give. But the podcast is actually an opportunity where if something sounds interesting to me, I can get on the phone because I'm going to have a directed recorded conversation. I know I'm going to get something out of it. And that actually gives me an opportunity to just chit chat with people. That's been great because it fills me with stories and anecdotes that I draw from in all sorts of other things. So when we're sitting around with like me and the print team or we're, we're saying, oh, let, you know, let's, let's create a, a, an issue, a special issue about the future of entrepreneurship. The first thing I do is I think like, okay, who have I talked to in the last couple of months who's told me something like really interesting? And th those are often people that I talk to for the podcast. So I never, ever, ever promise somebody when, when I interview them for the podcast that they're going to make it into print or that this is going to go anywhere else other than the podcast. But there are at least one to three instances an issue in which something came from the podcast and made it into the print magazine. So, so that's our way. And, and then very quickly, the other ones, Pessimist Archive does make some money, but that has that has actually, I've found, it has attracted a really interesting audience of policymakers and tech policy people and major investors and academics. And that has built a network for me and has put me into a prominent space inside those communities, that's immensely helpful. It, it's led to a lot of speaking engagements. It's led to financial opportunities and connections that I just, I just wouldn't have had otherwise. And so if Pessimist Archive only ever makes me a very small amount of take-home money, it doesn't matter. It's, it's worth it because it was, it was a positioning play and it was an IP play. So I'm, I'm actually about to shop a, a book proposal that is very, very based off of the work that I did in Pessimist Archive. And, and that's where I see a real opportunity to make some money and, and, to, and to grow a brand. So, so I see that as great. And then, and then Hush Money was really also something of an IP play. It was me collaborating. This one I have a co-host on collaborating with my friend Nicole Lappin, who's a best-selling personal finance author. And I knew that she, you know, she comes from the world of television. She's going to start thinking about television. And so me participating in Hush Money has indeed led to opportunities for TV development. I already have a couple TV development deals that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't done that. So that's where I see that. Yeah, there's so much qualitative benefit to podcasting that like is hard to really look at and and write on a piece of paper and saying, I, I, you know, week over week, I'm going to be able to get this and really measure it like linear in a linear fashion like that. But if you look back, it sounds like especially with your experience, like maybe looking back over the past six, 12 plus months producing these shows, like 
all the relationships, those qualitative pieces that you're able to get from it and what that can actually lead to from there is immense. Yeah. My philosophy on pretty much everything is do it for the experience, figure out the ROI later. Like I, I, I love creating things, throwing them out. I always think of myself as the center of a constellation of random things. And my job is to figure out how those things can connect at the moment in which they're going to connect. So it could be years down the line before, right? I mean, I have the Pessimist Archive leading to this book and a bunch of other things that are kind of lined up for it. That wouldn't have crossed my mind when I launched that show in 2016. But creating it and putting it out into the world enabled the stuff that I'm working on now. And so I, I just I do later, do now rationalize later. That's how I do it. For companies that hear that, and they've been historically leaning more towards like direct marketing, you know, whether that just be PPC, Facebook ads, you know, things basically that you can get down to a cost per click, you can get a report and really get clarity on what that, what that value is, what the return was, return on ad spend, all these various things. And they're starting to come around to the idea. I think podcasting and other brand marketing plays are a little bit more, getting more popular now. And I think they're going to continue to get way more popular, but they're still skeptical because like you can't really measure it. Like we're kind of talking about, like, how would you, how would you help them like understand that, you know, you may be three, six months into this and you won't be able to put your finger on it necessarily, but it does feel like something special might be happening and that's an indicator to keep going or however you would maybe help guide them to like think that through a little bit. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, you know, I mean, listen, I, I am not in, I'm not a marketer. I can't speak to that experience in full, but I, you know, I do know this from talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, which is that if they go out and they make their brand entirely about data-driven ad spend, then, you know, you're, you're generally in a trap of having to continue data-driven ad spend. People are finding you and you're gaining customers and you're also reminding them that you exist entirely through that ad spend. And it's there, you know, it's, it's there in front of people or it's not. It's not a relationship. The thing about media, the thing about doing it right is that it's, it's a really, really slow build and it can be really frustrating, but what you're building is a relationship, and that is so much stickier. That's the kind of thing that ultimately you don't have to like keep paying for. It just it just is. It it, it creates a connection, and it also enables you to communicate something more than just like product value. It, it enables you to communicate brand value and a message of what you stand for and how you fit into people's lives that goes beyond the individual product that you sell or service that you sell. That to me is just extremely important. And again, I come from media. So my entire thing is about building trust and building relationships. That's how I see it. That's the reason that I think that we put stuff out. You know, people don't care on a individual podcast or in like episode basis or article basis, right? It's, a, it's an accumulation over time and it's slow it's really, I just, I can't stress that enough. It's slow and you have to have patience with it. And you can't be stupid flashy about it. You got to understand your audience. It will also, and to that point, getting into this kind of stuff, producing this kind of stuff will force you 
to understand your audience in a way that you hadn't before. You will have to you will have to get a crystal clear understanding of what it is that they're looking for, what it is that they're interested in, how they relate to you in a way that I think product marketing ends up being so much about just how to lead to a conversion that you may you may miss some things. So I think when you go out there and you talk to people, it's it's not any different from going out and talking to customers except you're doing it at scale and you're making sure that you're having a a kind of one-way broadcast that feels like a conversation. But I, it, it to me, if you have the budget for it and you have the people who get it and understand that this isn't a sales pitch, this is a relationship builder, I think it's nothing but upside. I couldn't agree more. Does it feel like to you, maybe anecdotally or or actually, you know, getting this feedback through a concerted effort that the podcasts for entrepreneur has helped with that depth of relationship with readers where maybe, you know, and maybe it's not, obviously I would assume not all entrepreneur readers are also listening to the podcast, but hopefully a good number of them are. And maybe those are actually turning from, you know, casual readers and audience members to like some level of them, maybe turning into like super fans and being pretty vocal about spreading what you all are working on. Like, have you seen any of that sort of stuff? Yeah. I have. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the the podcast numbers are are you know the smallest possible fraction of our overall numbers, right? Because we we you know we've had decades to create and distribute a magazine and decades to create a robust website. And also, there are just simply larger numbers of people who consume those things than there are people who consume podcasts. So, obviously, our podcast numbers are smaller than our like entrepreneur.com traffic numbers or whatever. But when you think about your own consumption habits as a podcast listener, you develop a relationship with the host. You feel like you know them. They're in your ear. It's an intimate exchange in a way that reading something just simply isn't. And also it enables the growth of personalities, which is so important, I think. People connect with people a lot more than they connect with brands. And I I mean, I, I, I can think, for example, there were many years where I was obsessively listening to Slate podcasts. And, you know, they have a great slate of Slate podcasts. And I felt like I... On, I felt like I was connected to those hosts and that I was really engaged with and a big fan of Slate, even though, frankly, I had stopped reading Slate because I didn't have time anymore. Right? I just didn't have time. And so, but I but I had time on the subway going home or whatever, or washing dishes where I would be listening to these podcasts. And so, you know, you might think, oh, well, you know, I what the hell does that get Slate if I've basically checked out of the rest of the brand? And the answer is it got my money because we were willing to go to live shows to see these podcast hosts, right? I, I And and um, my wife for many years, because she was also obsessed with Slate Podcasts, was like paying for Slate Plus, which were, you'd get ad-free podcasts with, with bonus segments. And we were paying way more money to Slate than we ever would have if we had just been like regular readers of Slate. So it's true. It turns you into super fans and it also just primes you to do the deeper level of engagement with a brand that we might not have had we just become the quote unquote typical user. Yeah. Plus it also gives folks exactly what you just said. Your use case was you didn't have time to read anymore, but you did have some time to listen. And so we don't have to be so prescriptive over like the exact delivery via a specific medium 
but just be on all platforms, you know, have written, have video, have podcasts, you know, all sorts of that stuff. So people can consume the way that they want when, when they, when they have it. How do you think about that? You know, kind of as we come to a close here, how do you think about companies deciding it doesn't have to be so extreme of a dichotomy here, but maybe just for our purposes, we could frame it this way, which is like, should companies go all in on written, all in on podcasts, all in on video, a combination of all of like do, do less content, but all channels or do more content on one channel, like, or just any number of ways you would think about that in particular with your deep, like media expertise and content expertise. I'm curious your take on that. I think that you have to approach it in a multi-platform way. And the reason for that is because your audience is all over the place. Their consumption habits are going to be vast and different. And also, if you limit yourself to one form, then you're really actually giving up many opportunities to reach people in different ways without honestly that much else, that much extra work. Because a lot of this stuff, if you think about it correctly, will feed each other. So you could, you could interview somebody for a podcast, cut it up into little videos that go on social that are 60 seconds long, take the, inter- take the interesting stuff that that person said in the interview on the podcast, and then have it written up as a blog post. But there are, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not much different from like what a butcher does with an, right? You're like, we don't want to cut this thing up in as many possible ways as possible. And that, and that's what it is. And if you, so if, if you said, you know, we're only going to, we're only going to do blog posts. Well, okay. Well, you got to get somebody to do that research and maybe and do a bunch of interviews. And then it's going to go and live in, in one space. And there's going to be a ton of stuff left on the cutting room floor, right? Because any good reporting out of anything is going to mean that you're going to you're going to gather like a giant pile of information, and then only the very tip of it is going to make it into the piece. But if you have lots of different ways in which you're communicating with people and and lots of different formats, you may find all sorts of other opportunities for all that other information. I mean, I, I do this myself again with the podcasts where I am doing an interview and then I'm finding out, oh, you know, this this thing, this script that I wrote for my podcast actually can be a pretty easy translation into a 600 word article for the for the magazine. And then and then, oh, you know, this actually now also makes for great social content. And oh, you know, I can make a video where I'm talking about the thing that somebody told me and I'm just doing it direct to camera and I put it on LinkedIn. That'll get me, it'll be watched 6,000 times. That's not bad for four minutes of additional work on something that I already did, right? This is, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. You don't just sit there in one little corner. You try to cover everything. Oh, we're huge believers in that. And I think that, that it's cool that the, the ability to do that now is, is easier than it's ever been to, to repurpose all of that in a way that's not just regurgitating on a different channel, but to your point, like taking relevant clips, taking relevant snippets, adding a layer on top of it for that particular channel, but not having to start from scratch, like a, a blank Google Doc or something like that is incredible. And and I think that's just going to get more and more easier as time goes on and, and more brands are going to use that because they'll get the most out of every piece of content. So yeah, I, I totally echo that. Awesome, Jason. Well, as we kind of come to a close here, the last question I would have here is, you know, you've dropped a lot of a lot of nuggets for companies to think about podcasting and content. But if you were to leave everybody with like one last piece of advice, 
where a company's trying to decide, maybe they're doing some other forms of content, but they're trying to decide if podcasting is a channel that they should invest in. Whether that just be time, you know, money, anything, resources, all that stuff. Like, what would you say to, to them as they're making that decision? I would say, keep this in mind. For podcasting, the barrier to entry is extremely low. All you gotta do is buy a microphone, and sometimes people don't even do that. They seem to just record things on their iPhones. The barrier to entry is really low, which means that the barrier of success is really high. It is going to take work. It doesn't take tons of resources. If you've got somebody who's passionate about podcasting and is willing to push themselves to create something that feels unique and valuable to an audience, and that's informed by the needs of an audience, or at least informed by the opportunity to do something that people aren't doing in the in the podcast ecosystem, you can get out there and you can create it and you can do it without really creating much of a drain on your resources if you don't feel like this is something you know you want to invest in. But the reason I want to stress the barrier to success is high, that shouldn't put you off. That shouldn't say, oh, well, then it's not worth doing. But it should tell you that you need to be creative about it. You can't just throw something out there because, oh, we have to have a podcast, so we might as well have two people sit in a room and like chit chat for a while. No, you have to take it seriously and you have to put it out there and then you have to give it time and you have to give it the trust and the attention and love that it needs. And, and I think there is no shame at all in creating something and then adjusting it as you go and it taking a year or longer before you have anything that you would consider a reasonable audience. It's fine because this stuff takes time, but the benefits of it, the benefits of building these super fan relationships is totally, totally worth it. I love that. Thank you so much for the time today, Jason. And everybody listening, I highly encourage you. So Jason, just explain some of the execution that he's done over the years with these three podcasts. But I think it'd be really worthwhile to go check all of them out to see it in action and follow him on social. I follow you on Instagram, Jason, and you're one of my favorite follows, honestly, that you're so creative with everything you do. Like, I love the stories you tell in there on your IG stories and things like that. So I really encourage everybody to go check out Entrepreneur Magazine, obviously, and then Problem Solvers, Hush Money, and, and Pessimist Archive. Is there anywhere else you would like to point people to specifically, Jason, before we head out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thanks. I, listen, I appreciate all that. Listen, the uh, I, you know, I, like I said, I create a random constellation of things. And so the, the place <laughs> where it all comes together, just for whatever it's worth, I, I'd love if you went. So my website is, is my name, J-A-S-O-N, F as in Frank, E-I, F as in Frank, E-R.com, JasonPfeiffer.com. You will be prompted immediately when you go there to sign up for my newsletter. And that's the place where I really keep people informed of, of the greatest of the things that I'm doing. And so that's a great place to, um, to get in touch and to follow the work. And I hope you do. And if you reach out, I promise I will respond. I'm really big on responding. Awesome. Thank you so much again, Jason. Hey, thank you. Thank you.